Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women, a podcast that empowers right-minded women. I'm Kelsey Bowler. And I'm Lauren Evans. So excited to be on the show with you today, Kelsey. We have a lot to unpack. We're going to be discussing Taylor Swift getting political and endorsing the so-called Equality Act, Miley Cyrus's $175 pro-abortion sweatshirt, Donald Trump's, quote, nasty remarks about Meghan Markle, and Nikki Haley unapologetically standing up for the beliefs of pro-life women. It is right there in the Declaration of Independence. You can't have liberty and the pursuit of happiness without the right to life. We'll also feature our sit-down interview with the Federalist Molly Hemingway, where among other topics, including her views on feminism and the Kavanaugh fallout, she shares how she dealt with the loss of her former colleague and our Problematic Women co-host, Lee Payton. To break down everything, we are also joined in studio today by Lady Brains podcast host, social media expert, and our colleague at the Heritage Foundation, Lindsay Fifield. Hey, guys. Great to have you, Lindsay. Over in the next couple weeks, we're going to be featuring a few interviews with different Lady Brains co-hosts, so stay tuned for those. And remember, if you are a problematic woman yourself or you support strong, right-minded women, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review or a five-star rating on iTunes. And please encourage your friends to subscribe. Let's get to it and talk about Taylor Swift's decision to get political. Taylor Swift is back on the political scene this week after voicing her support for Pride Month and the Equality Act. The singer-songwriter tweeted over the weekend a photo of a rainbow-colored letter she wrote to her fans explaining her decision to endorse the legislation, as well as a letter to her senators encouraging them to support it. Of course, this all led to some bad blood. The letter reads, quote, As you know, the House just passed the Equality Act, which would protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in their workplace, in their homes, in schools. She continues by saying, for American citizens to be denied jobs or housing based on who they love or how they identify, in my opinion, is un-American and cruel. For most of her career, Swift stayed mum about politics, but not anymore. In a recent article she wrote for Elle titled, 30 Things I Learned Before Turning 30, Swift addressed her change of tune. Quote, I'm finding my voice in terms of politics. I took a lot of time educating myself on the political system and the branches of government that are signing off on bills that affect our day-to-day life. I saw so many issues that put our most vulnerable citizens at risk and felt like I had to speak up and try to help make a change. Only as someone approaching 30 did I feel informed enough to speak out about it to my 114 million followers. Invoking racism and provoking fear through thinly veiled messaging is not what I want from our leaders. And I realized that it is my responsibility to use my influence against that disgusting rhetoric. I'm going to do more to help. We have a big race coming up next year. Well, who's happy that Taylor Swift took the time to educate herself on the different branches of government before deciding to wade into political discussions? It's so cringeworthy. (laughs) Well, and why wait until 30 to learn about the branches of government? Yeah, this is something that she should have learned in education. Well, I don't know. I actually think that it's cool that she didn't think that she was old enough to weigh in. Yes, I do love young people being involved in politics, but I think it was responsible for her to say, you know what, I was too young to really influence people on politics. It's just that now that she feels that she's informed, she's not 
she's still not informed. She's still just touting talking points that the left has kind of given her because they've sort of actually bullied her into talking about politics. Like she never used to weigh into politics because she she didn't want to alienate a big portion of her crowd. But then after a certain number of people really bullied her into saying things, that's when she actually started weighing into politics. Right. And as a lifelong Taylor Swift fan, um, I'm actually same age as her. I feel like I grew up with her. Uh, I've always appreciated that she didn't comment um, on politics, although throughout the past couple years, it's become very obvious that she um, is on the left. Um, she's made she's made a couple of endorsements here and there in Tennessee um, that have made that very obvious. But for the most part, she kept quiet. I think this signals that we're going to hear from her in the political space far more often. And you know, as someone who respected her for her decision not to comment, I think, you know, as Americans, we all have a right to have opinions and voice that. But when you have 114 million very loyal followers and fans, that also comes with a responsibility to communicate about policy and politics responsibly. And as one of the first examples where she decided to wade into this discussion, I thought she was very misleading on what the Equality Act does, why it is even you know, in Congress right now. And most importantly, she didn't have the courage or, or appears to not have the courage to address some of the most controversial aspects to it, including the fact that this could basically wipe out women's sports for good. It could also cause charities, nonprofits, homeless shelters to close. It could force doctors um, to perform procedures that they're not comfortable with. So when it comes to politics, like you really have to know what you're talking about. And putting out a rainbow colored press release, I think, does a disservice to that. And it further pushes people into their corners because, you know, conservatives will look at this and say, well, you're misinforming your 114 million followers and, you know, you're not changing our minds. And then on the other side, she's kind of just brainwashing them. Exactly. And it, you can clearly see who she's been informed by, too, as well. So it's, she probably doesn't know that she's misinforming people because she is herself misinformed. And so she is just taking the talking points from the Human Rights Commission or whoever else wrote this press release for her, which I'm sure if we had the back end emails of like where this piece was actually written, it was definitely not written by her. Because the Equality Act, as we know, is not only opposed by conservatives. Parents, some of the people that you just mentioned, we actually... Um, hosted here at the Heritage Foundation, a coalition of left-wing and radical feminist people with uh, voicing their concerns about the Equality Act. And it's it's not about hate. And I think that's the important thing that we need to make sure that we're speaking up about because a lot of conservatives aren't making that case. And so we, we're just letting celebrities and people like that run around misinforming their large audiences. And we have a responsibility to kind of push back. Yes. And as someone who is such a fan, it pains me to have to criticize her in this regard because I have so much respect for her. And again, I want her to be able to speak out. But I think if you're going to speak out, you have to be held accountable for what you're talking about and you have to be able to have these tough conversations. If she's unwilling to do that, which thus far she's proving, she doesn't even enable comments on her social media feeds, which means it's a one-sided conversation. She can talk 
at her 114 million fans, but they can't talk with her. They can't respond and have a conversation. And if this is just going to be a one-sided conversation, I think she's just like the rest of all these other celebrities. And again, as a longtime fan, that disappoints me because she took time. She claimed she took time to enter this space so that she could do it more responsibly. And I don't think she's living up to that. That said, there's been some other celebrities out there who (laughs) have been engaging politics for a long time and are only getting more and more extreme. Lauren caught one of these examples this week. Do you want to share that? Yeah. And she didn't just put out one tweet. She changed her Twitter bio to support the Equality Act. Everything she's tweeted for the past 24 hours has just been retweets of other people supporting the Equality Act. And she's pushing her fans to write their senators letters, which great. We should be teaching our young girls to write their senators and get their voice heard voices heard, but they literally are tweeting, hey, Taylor, I saw you posted this. So excited that I did this too. Not, hey, I looked more into this issue. Not, hey, like, I'm, thank you for reminding me to do this. Like, no, Taylor told me to do this. So I did this. And Kelsey, you made such a good point. I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift. I do not follow her on Twitter, but I can imagine if I did and I was excited to follow her, I'd be really disappointed. I did not sign up for her political updates for her entire career until up to now. But Taylor Swift was not the only celebrity on Twitter making political statements. Miley Cyrus tweeted a photo of herself licking the frosting off a whole cake that reads, abortion is healthcare. The tweet also teased, quote, very special collab with at PPFA, which is Planned Parenthood, at Happy Hippie Foundation, and at Mark Jacobs to be announced, very, with six Ys, soon, exclamation point, end quote. That announcement, a $175 pink sweatshirt she created with designer Mark Jacobs that says, don't F with my freedom, along with a topless photo of her holding fruit up to only cover her breasts. So my first question is, who is going to buy a $175 t-shirt sweatshirt? I would buy a really expensive sweatshirt if I thought the proceeds were going to go to a great charity, like Every Mother Counts or like a really important cause. And so I think that's why the sweatshirt cost so much because it's it's a Marc Jacobs sweatshirt. But I think they're actually giving a lot of the proceeds to Planned Parenthood. 100 percent of the proceeds. I just don't understand why the left in their celebrity activism has to be so vulgar and, and use this type of language and put this plaster this language all over their clothes. Look, we clearly know what you stand for. And there's a lot of ways of saying that when you're out in public, you're walking around in front of children. Do they really need to be reading that? Do they need to be seeing that? It is. It is leaves nothing up to the imagination. (laughs) And it's also just weaponizing freedom because, you know, that's actually a sentiment that a conservative would want to wear a sweatshirt that said, like, don't mess with my freedom. We all love freedom. And so they're trying to create this artificial divide, like as if conservatives hate freedom or that we all just want handmaid's tale and it's just not true. And so by making that their slogan and trying to pretend that they have the corner on loving freedom, it's really divisive and it's unnecessary because we know that having access to abortion doesn't mean that you're more free than anyone else. It means you're less free. You don't have the right to life. And without the right to life, what rights do you really have? Right. Well, you know who laid that out well this week Nikki Haley who we're going to talk about later in the show but first we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll be chatting about all the royal drama involving Meghan Markle and Donald Trump don't go far are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter The Agenda each Tuesday in The Agenda you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on what position conservatives are taking and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage, 
that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for the agenda on heritage.org today. Back during an interview on The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, the then-suits actress Meghan Markle called Trump misogynistic and divisive. She also said that she was thinking about moving to Canada if he won the election. While Trump was visiting the UK, a reporter from The Sun told him about these remarks and asked what exactly he thought. Here's that soundbite. Uh, Meghan, who's now the Duchess of Sussex, Sussex, uh, we've given her a different name, she can't make it because she's got maternity leave. Are you sorry not to see her because she wasn't so nice about you during the campaign? I don't know if you saw that. I don't. I didn't know that, no. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, I, I hope she's okay. Uh, I did not know that. No. She said she'd move to Canada if you got elected. Turned out she moved to Britain. Well, that would be good. There are a lot of people moving here. So what can I say? No, I didn't know that she was nasty. Is it good having an American princess, then, Mr. President? Is that well, I think sort of helped the links? I think it's nice. I think it's nice. And I'm sure she'll do uh, excellently. She'll be, uh, she'll be very good. She'll be very good. I hope she does. The mainstream media ran wild with the story, making blanket statements that Trump called Markle nasty. In an interview airing this morning with Pierce Morgan, Trump attempted to clarify what he meant. I want to clarify one thing. This is obviously people been talking about this Meghan Markle business. Yeah. Do you think Meghan Markle's nasty or not? No. You know, the question was asked to me and I didn't know that she said anything bad about me. It sounds like she did. And that's OK. I mean, hey, join the crowd. Right. You've heard about that, too, with yourself. Of I know that. Right. But it seems like she had, and they said some of the things that she said, and it's actually on tape. And I said, well, I didn't know she was nasty. I wasn't referring to her, she's nasty. I said, she was nasty about me. And essentially, I didn't know she was nasty about me. So I said, but you know what? She's doing a good job. I hope she enjoys her life. What do you think of her? I think she's, she's American. I think she's very nice. She's an now, American I don't, princess. In honestly, I don't family. know her. Mm. So I have to be honest, I don't know her. But it just shows you how, Terrible the news can be because if you read that, I'm sure you did. That was talking about nasty. She was nasty. Well, we had about to clear it up. So, what do you guys think? Was it fair the way the media framed the story, or was it another example of quote unquote fake news? Oh, totally fake. I mean, it was. Th- this is exactly what they do time and time again. And I think the timing on this is actually what was designed to kind of overshadow and drown out the positive coverage of the Trump state visit. So from, I mean, we just saw Melania had the most like incredible fashion moments. She honored yes. Princess Diana <laughs> with like the beautiful hat. And it was just, it was a really successful and important trip. Um, talking about the U.S.-U.K. free trade deal, Brexit. There were so many other things that should have been front and center. And the media is doing what they always do. It's distracting people from what really matters. And they're trying to create division where none actually exists. And they know that the royal family isn't actually going to respond because that's what they do. You know, they're, they limit the access and they kind of have much more clean PR. Uh, traditionally, obviously, Meghan Merkle, before she got married, was a little bit more free in things that she said. So that was why they kind of orchestrated this whole thing. That was what the Sun reporter was trying to do. And I think that we now, especially with the context, with like watching the actual clip, it's so obvious that there was just no there there and they were just trying to orchestrate a problem. That's what frustrated me so much because when I saw this go wild on Twitter this weekend, President Trump calls Meghan Markle nasty. And if you don't click on the article and actually listen to the full interview clip, which we just played, you don't know the context of how that remark came. And look, 
did President Trump have to use the word nasty? No. But he was specifically responding to a question about what he thought about Meghan Markle saying she would move to another country if he were elected. Her response in that regard was not nice. It was not kind. You know, maybe I won't go as far as to call it nasty, but this is what people love. A lot of people love. Some people hate. But you're going to get it from President Trump. You are going to get the truth. When someone asks him a question, he is a grown man. He does not have to take the bait. But if he engages with an interview interviewer, he is going to be honest. And that's how he felt about Meghan Markle's response. I think we're more frustrated than he is, too. I think he knows from a long career that, like, he's going to say stuff and it's just going to get kind of distorted by the media. And he just lets it roll off his back, whereas we're sitting here, like, angry about it because it does get frustrating when the media is so divisive and so distorting. And we should be upset about it. But I'm glad that he doesn't really let it bother him. It was really clear in the Pierce Morgan interview that he was like, yeah, the media lies. Didn't you know they do that all the time? (laughs) Yeah, he's one of the only funny comedians we have in, in America right now. And it's one of his punchlines. Oh, yeah, nasty woman. Should should we be calling anybody nasty? No. But he kind of just said it like, oh, yeah, that was a nasty comment. He wasn't like Meghan Markle is a nasty woman. Right. We all know what he meant. He meant that comment was nasty. He was not meaning to call Meghan Markle nasty. And there's such a big difference there. And for the media to pretend that it was the opposite, I, I think was really irresponsible. And going back to t- what we were just talking about with Taylor Swift, one celebrity retweets this and half of society thinks now this is fact. And there's no way to really argue against this and stand up for the president. Right. And even if those people correct their tweets, those re- those tweets will get, you know, a couple dozen retweets. But the original just has thousands. Right. Well, at least all our listeners know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, we'll be sitting down with Molly Hemingway, a senior editor at The Federalist, a senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale College, and a Fox News contributor. We'll discuss the fallout from the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, her views on feminism, dating, Lauren Evans actually might be getting set up on the spot, you might all hear about it, and we'll also talk to Molly about the grief of losing her colleague and our former a co-host here at Problematic Women, Brie Payton. We want to remind all our listeners that this Saturday, June 8th, would have been Brie's 27th birthday. So we would all appreciate if you would keep her family and her friends in your thoughts and prayers. We'll be back. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. So the first topic we want to dive into is this question of conservative feminism. Do you, uh, do you embrace the label as a conservative feminist, or do you think we should have nothing to do with that term? So I never mind when people label me, but I'm not sure if either of those labels are words that I tend to use about myself. I actually have begun calling myself conservative more. I come out of the libertarian side of things, but I've kind of realized that I'm more of a constitutionalist. And I, I, so anyway, I don't mind being called a conservative. I definitely don't identify as a feminist, not that I take offense at people who do. It's just not a political ideology that I've ever really caught into, um, even though I love being a woman and I love 
uh, you know, I'm very happy to be a woman. I just haven't ever really seen the benefit of the feminist movement or how it has improved the lives of women or those we love. Can you give us any examples of how you think the feminist movement has hurt women? Well, I think in general, I think being a woman is wonderful, and a lot of what I get from feminism is this idea that being a woman is full of pain and suffering, and that it's a bad thing, and that it's something you need to fight against, and you need to use technology to prevent your body from becoming pregnant, or, you know, it's just like all of this negativity about being a woman, and for me, thankfully, because of the way I was raised and because of the wonderful influences in my life, I have always been very happy to be a female and, and, and embraced it and haven't viewed it as a place of suffering or pain, but quite the opposite. So something that's come out of this kind of modern-day feminist movement and the Women's March is this hashtag MeToo movement, uh, which I think had some really great, uh, a great start, but has now proved to have some kind of negative externalities. Uh, what's your take on the movement and did it come from a good place? Is it taking us to a good place? Yeah, that's that's a good question and I there are parts about it that I have no problem with or even like. I think it is important that people understand the need to treat female colleagues or subordinates or other women in their midst, for men to treat women well, not to treat them as sexual objects. These are very important things. I'm happy about that. Uh, as with most movements that kind of get a little, like, w- they get whipped up into a frenzy as opposed to being dispassionate and thoughtful, I think there are some downsides for women. Um, I think it has made men frightened to interact with women, and it makes perhaps women less likely to be put in positions where they can gain power in a corporation, because men are so worried about being alone with them, or worried about a woman changing her mind about something and making an allegation. And I also just think it's actually bad for the purpose of dating. I met my husband at work. Uh, I'm really happy I did. We got married and we had kids. Probably everything that we did at the early part of our relationship would be an extreme violation of Me Too principles. Um, it's, a, it's an important place, it's an important way to meet people is at work and whatnot. And the more we stifle those interactions or the more we don't forgive people for slight errors and how they handle things, it's just not good for women or men. So it's got some good sides. Overall, I'm skeptical of mass movements such as that, that one. So on that note, what is your advice to young women who do face some sort of injustice, whether it's in their personal life or in the workplace? And I use the word injustice very intentionally because an injustice is not the same thing as an inequality. Yeah, that's a good precision there because inequality is all around us and not even necessarily a problem. Like as you work your way through your career, you have people working you have more people working beneath you than you did when you started, and that's okay because that's actually good for, for everybody. Um, in general, though, I think it's important to be careful how... Women should be careful about how they interact so as to just be aware that human nature is sinful and that you should not expect people to behave perfectly because you will be very disappointed. So you should also think about your own behavior and protecting yourself in the case that you are with someone who's even worse than the average person. Um, And then at the same time, when bad things happen, I think it's important to be firm in response and to seek justice, seek seek a a just outcome, and not pretend like it didn't happen or anything. 
at the same time, don't dwell on it and make it like the defining moment of your existence. I was talking with my sister recently, and we were remembering some things that we'd almost all but forgotten, bad things that had happened. But I was happy that we'd kind of forgotten it. It meant we weren't dwelling in a bad thing that had happened decades ago. And sometimes some of my friends seem like they have trouble letting go of something. And, you know, partly that's why it's important to be firm and make sure that bad things don't happen to ourselves or to our friends but also not to make that the, the sum total of your existence and think about all the good things that have happened, all the good interactions you've had with people, and all the times people went out of their way to be helpful, as opposed to that one time that person was really mean to you or misogynistic or whatnot. It's just, just move on. That's the best way to uh, you know, not, not move on from it in the sense of not seeking justice, but move on from it in the sense of don't let their bad action define you because that's what the, it's like a victory for them. So something where this played out was the Kavanaugh hearings, where these uh, unsubstantiated allegations really kind of threw a wrench in his confirmation hearing. Do you think this is something that we're going to see more regularly? Well, perhaps. By the way, that's the, that's the kindest way to describe <laughs> what happened there. Um, They're a little wrench in it. <laughs> yeah. I think that one thing I noticed was that people who were older were perhaps more initially skeptical of the claim to begin with because they'd gone through this once before. So when I was a kid, I remember I was traveling with my mom when last-minute allegations against another justice were made without any substantiation. Um, that was Nita Hill, made all sorts of claims about her former boss, Justice Thomas. They came out of nowhere. They were not matched by a single other person. Um, they were disputed by people, including FBI agents who had interviewed her, contemporary colleagues who said she'd pretty much reversed the... the scenario um, that she described and there was no support for it and he ended up being confirmed despite these horrific unsubstantiated allegations but what happened in the in the decades since then is that there was a sort of like unrelenting campaign to make people think that something else had happened so instead of Anita Hill being someone who the American public found to be completely lacking credibility there was just a sort of slow drip campaign to restore her or to rehabilitate her reputation, to give her plum positions and to have her win awards. And then there was like this HBO miniseries or something recently. And it was just like all the things that had actually happened were turned on their head. And it took an actual campaign by progressive activists to do this. But anyway, point being, the moment this same thing happens with Kavanaugh, I think a lot of people kind of remembered what had happened in 1991 with Justice Thomas. And so they were just not saying that they knew enough to dis to decide who was telling the truth or not, but they knew enough to be skeptical. And then when there was not any support for the allegations that ever arose, but there was a lot of evidence that that just ju now Justice Kavanaugh had not lived a life that matched with this description, um, I think that gave people more reason to think that it's important when people make allegations that they be substantiated and not just believed. It is important that we have not just a legal principle of innocence until proven guilt, but sort of a cultural support for this idea that, that you can't just make a charge against someone and have it be accepted. And so I think that showed one of the major flaws with the Me Too movement was this idea that all women must be believed. We know in our day-to-day -day lives that sometimes women are not to be believed. We know ourselves women who have said things that are not true. And this idea that that wouldn't be true when it comes to claims of sexual assault, you know, it's a small but significant percentage of false claims that are made. And that has to be part of our understanding when people make a claim. 
Well, we certainly will want to have you back on the podcast when your book is out uh, this July. Again, the name is Justice on Trial. It is already available for available pre-order. for pre-order right now. Um, so we'd love to do an entire episode unpacking what actually went down there and the long-term implications of that. Um, but changing subjects a little bit, um, a lot of our listeners know. Uh, uh, know and miss the voice of our former co-host Brie Payton. She, of course, was a staff writer at the Federalist and uh, a very close friend to you, Molly. Um, and we've made an effort to keep her spirit alive on this show, um, and also be real with people and talk about pain and grief. Um, so we wanted to know how have you been dealing and making sense of the loss of a 26-year-old. Okay, there's a lot there with that question. First off, I would say not a day goes by that I don't think of her, and I kind of enjoy thinking about her because it just makes me feel close to her, including today, multiple times today. This is a silly thing, but she, of course, loved makeup, and she would always, like, try to fix my lack of makeup, and she would come in and, like, here's all you need to do. You could be so pretty. No, not that's not how she said it, but, like, you know, she would... She would hand select products and I was just thinking about that as uh, the makeup was going on today that that she would be getting a kick out of it I I want to mention I mean it's kind of silly to mention but it's just when I wrote the book I had the manuscript due on a certain date and of course as as deadline writers do I turned it in at like 11.15 on that date 11.15pm with 45 minutes to spare (laughs) And the first thing I did when I turned it in was just started bawling because I hadn't had any time to just think about her. I just grieve. Like, I had been so busy with the book. Obviously, this happened at the beginning of the book. We went to the funeral. Uh, it was wonderful to be there with her family. By the way, I love the Cindy Payton episode of this, which I have listened to because it. I just I love Cindy and I loved what she had to say. Um, but I hadn't had enough time to just actually have that level of a good cry and I think I was in total shock originally I definitely cried the moment it happened but then I was kind of like people would even say something like I'm so sorry and I'd say it's okay I haven't I haven't uh, processed it yet and I meant it as like this kind of sick joke but it was actually true I hadn't processed it and then like the first moment I could process it I was just bawling um I miss her so much it's hard for people who don't know her to know like how full of life how much she made made every day better, and just like, I don't know, just everything. So it's hard not to think of her all the time. As for how to handle it, um, Brie and I share faith in Christ, and that absolutely makes death lose its sting. And knowing that she uh, had has that faith and that she is with our Savior is a wonderful thing. So that, I don't know how, I even think about that because some of our other friends don't share that and I think that would be more difficult um, but for us having that it's a source of intense comfort and so I get to think about her a lot just even as a shared sister in Christ I'll never forget in that podcast um, her mom specifically told us that one of the last conversations Brie had was with her father was Brie asking, how do I ensure that I get to heaven? And her mom was just so struck by the fact that that was the number one mission. And that is just so rare for a 
26-year-old who has so much going on in, in her actually, life. Actually, I kind of get a kick out of that. She did love talking about religion, theological distinctions. You know, so it's just like a weird bucket of items for Brie. Religion, makeup, pop culture, you know, just like well, she not that, things you would normally put together. Political philosophy. women are so much more than just politics. There's such a stereotype of what a conservative woman is. Yeah. And she smashed that because if you go back and look on her Twitter, one second she's stuffing her face with <laughs> In-N-Out burgers and the next she's putting on lipstick and the next there's lipstick on her In-N-Out burger. Right. <laughs> And then she's talking about Straussianism or something. Right. So. <laughs> she also showed don't judge a book by, by its cover. She was so gorgeous. And she would just like open her mouth and the most profound things would come out. And you were like, how, how did, did you have it all? Like you were gorgeous and you were a genius. Um, but Molly, she really looked up to you um, as, as a mentor. Um, and some of our listeners haven't listened to all the episodes we did about Brie. Can you kind of let them know what we should learn from Bree's life? Well, I was really struck. It's it's hard for me to, I'm not sure if I have a good answer to that. But I was definitely struck by how she was going full speed the entire time. I went through everything that she had written for us, and it was literally almost just under 1,000 pieces she'd written for us in a very short period of time. I think it was like, I don't know what it was, three and a half years. It's, it's like a crazy rate of writing. And she was a voracious reader. She had this appetite for knowledge. And I love, you know, you might even, sometimes I was thinking, like, I should have told her to, call, to not do so much. And I would try to say that occasionally, but I thought, you know how you feel this, like, guilt when something happens. And I was like, oh, should I? Was this something where I should have been much more insistent that she not work so hard? Um, but I love that she worked so hard, and it wasn't just with us, with the Federalist. She worked hard on everything. You know, she worked very hard at being good on television, and she would study it, and she would think about it. And she worked really hard at her friendships and making people feel loved, and, and we all felt it. Um, she just put everything into whatever it was that she was doing, and I'm so thankful she did, because none of us would have had any idea that this would have, uh, that her life on Earth would have ended so early, but I don't think you can feel regret about how she lived her life, because she just, she sucked every last bit of marrow out of the bone, and I love her for it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being willing to take some time to remember her we appreciate it and we love talking about her as as difficult as it can be i like carry i carry all this stuff from her funeral services in my purse just so i can like pull it out and look at her picture and i you know we keep it on our um on our bookshelf at home so that i want the kids to not forget you know because they were kind of young when they first knew her and i want them to not forget so that she can be a good influence so i i applaud you for remembering to remember her Well, this is a topic that I think she would absolutely appreciate us asking you about. A lot of people listening to this podcast right now might not have any idea that Molly Hemingway has a secondary career of being a matchmaker. How did this come about? And uh, we might have a single little co-host over here. Great. But I'd love to just hear your strategy and how you go about setting people up. It really depends. And it started because I had this really good friend who was the most amazing woman I knew. She was beautiful. She's well-educated. So nice, like truly nice lady. 
dressed really well. And I knew she wanted to be married, and she was not married. And finally, you know, I would kind of check in about it and just ask. And then I got really frustrated that she wasn't married because I thought she would make such a good wife. So we were at a church convention, and I talked to her, and it turned out she wasn't married still. And so I just immediately started hollering, like, at the convention for, for people who might be a good match for her. So <laughs> I'm not saying that's my normal MO, but it, and I'm not saying that that was a particularly helpful <laughs> approach, but I did find her this a really great guy because I talked to other people who knew a good guy who kind of seemed like sort of a similar situation. This really amazing guy. He's really smart. He's really nice. He would make a great spouse, but he wasn't married. And so, uh, you know, put them together. He took the initiative. It was great. But everybody has their own approach. I only work with people who are actually interested in being married. I don't want to have to, like, convince them that marriage is good and find them a spouse. I only work with people who are already understanding that if it worked out, they would like to be married. And then I try to just find out from them just more about who they are and what their interests are, what they think marriage will be like, what their non-negotiables are, both pro and con. And then I just kind of have a big nationwide database of people and <laughs> try to throw people together. And sometimes I actually do put people from different states together and it works out. I just like had this idea about this one friend of mine who's like the little brother of a girl I grew up with, and this other woman who I'd seen, who just kind of, she just seemed like they would be good. And I think, I think it's working out really well. And they don't even live in the same state, but they, but they will soon, <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, um, I just think it's about being intentional. And a lot of times people think that they need to be intentional with their career, and then they're not intentional about marriage, even though I, I'm pretty sure like far more of your happiness in life comes from marriage than career. So I don't know why people think it's just going to happen. Like, you have to work really just intentionally. I'm not saying it's hard work, but you just have to kind of think about it and not just drift into one relationship or another, but think about what you want and how to how to get married. So anyway, are you, so you're not married? I'm not. I'm, great. I'm very single. Great. So, I mean. Um, how many couples have you set up? I don't, I think we have like, oh, I also have an assistant now who, who works on this with me. So when I say we, I'm referring to my assistant and me. I think we Are have you like. you start charging people? No, no. And, then, and I usually do it, so I'm Lutheran and I usually do it for fellow Lutherans, but we have expanded and it has gone, the expansion has gone with some success. Um, so anyway, I'm going to be sending you an email, Lauren, with a list of questions. <laughs> it's best to answer them as honestly as possible. Don't think like, here's what I should say, but just answer what you really think and I'm not saying that the way people answer is what they get because sometimes people are bad judges of what they think they want like sometimes people think they want someone like themselves it's usually not a great idea so anyway great this is gonna leave yeah. our listeners on quite the cliffhanger <laughs> um so yeah we'll we'll get working on this but well I'm, do you want to I'm can I ask you too so that's cl- it's oh, close to that's, that's good okay can I ask um can I ask a few questions? Oh, yeah. Great. Okay. What are you looking for in a mate? What type of what type of traits do you like in men? Like what what things seem to be things that you're drawn? So his faith is probably the most important to me. Great. Um, I like someone who's pretty simple, uh, but also um, intelligent. I know those the seem like two kind of, but I like someone who doesn't who would be fine like maybe one day moving outside the city and having like a quieter life, but at the same time keeping that really intense um, conversations and I'm an eight on the Enneagram scale so I, I enjoy conflict 
So that's <laughs> something too that I, I need to make sure that a guy can handle. Great. And and you you know from knowing you, you need a man who's confident. Yeah. Uh, because Lauren is not shy. She has opinions. Confident, but like a quiet confidence. Yeah. It sounds like it could be a good thing. Where are you from originally? Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. Are there any? Yeah. What is your What is your preferred range of ages? And I just want to I just want to throw. Uh, a word here that my husband is younger than I am, yeah. so um, so don't don't feel constrained. Uh, so right now I'm 28. Okay. So I'd say maybe 26 to 38, 36. That's great. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. And should they be in politics or not be in politics? Probably prefer in politics, but oh. not not a deal breaker. Okay. At least interested in politics. Yeah. Okay, great. And for life. That's another deal breaker. That was kind of one of my only... I didn't really care about political viewpoints, but I definitely cared about someone being pro-life. Uh, just because I couldn't imagine having kids with someone who was like... Didn't have that it's viewpoint. Baby. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. But, okay, good. We'll celebrate when it's on its way out of the womb. <laughs> Are there any anything physical that you have any particular... By the way, men usually have like really precise physical desires and women are much more open-minded and there's yeah there's studies to back that up i just want to say recently someone a really good friend of mine entered molly's meat market and (laughs) he no i'm just kidding um that's what one of my friends jokingly calls it anyway he described a woman that was literally describing someone i knew who was single down to like hair hair length and body type and everything and like personality it was amazing and they got married anyway I was like this is amazing you've just written exactly what you want anyway so what do you what do you have any I like a guy who looks like he could play offensive line like a like a big dude but like like it's not a deal breaker I like as long as he's like a a good dude you know maybe not too short but yeah because you're five seven no I'm five six five six so Taller than you, at least. Yeah, which shouldn't be too hard, but yeah, but a big boy, big. I think big boy. <laughs> even from down south, that's yeah. Okay. So. Okay, I'm working on it. Right. All right. Well, I think. I, By the I, way, when this works out, let's do another show with him <laughs> yeah. and you, and we'll just oh, we can we'll do just a podcast revisit at the it. wedding. <laughs> Oh my gosh, we are leaving our listeners on such a cliffhanger, and I really hope Lauren lets us publish this full interview, because this was fun. <laughs> of course. We got to see Molly's matchmaking, Molly's meat matching, <laughs> meat market, meat market in action. <laughs> Molly, you're amazing. Oh, Thank you're you amazing. so much very for coming on the podcast. Thanks. We love talking to you, and we hope to have you back once your book is out. Great, anytime. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is time to crown our problematic woman of the week. This week, the honor goes to the one and only Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador and South Carolina governor. Haley 
This week had some thoughts about feminism, which she delivered at the keynote address at the Susan B. Anthony List 12th Annual Campaign for Life Gala. Haley there applauded the pro-life effort, saying, you are doing God's work, making our world a better place. She mentioned that her husband, Michael, had uh, a journey when he was younger through foster care and explained how blessed she feels that he was adopted by a loving family and that his biological mother didn't choose a different path for him. The former ambassador also opened up about her own struggle with fertility. And while she now has two children, she described that journey as a roller coaster of false hopes and painful disappointment. Haley slammed the idea that women must adhere to a particular set of values as being one of the most anti-women ideas in today's culture. Unfortunately, many on the left use the abortion debate to divide women and demand conformity. They do this in the name of feminism. But that is not real feminism. The idea that women must adhere to a particular set of values is one of the most anti-women ideas in today's culture. Haley concluded her speech by saying, you can't truly stand for America if you don't stand for all Americans, including the babies who don't yet have a voice. Lauren, there's a lot that she covered that we're often addressing on the show together. What were your thoughts? Uh, I think she must be a big Problematic Women podcast fan. <laughs> She's listening? Uh, no. So the speech was awesome. If you continue listening, she talks about her time at, at the U.N., talks about seeing babies being thrown into fires, babies being torn away from their mothers, being sent into the war, and how in America we are such a special country because we do have the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence that values life and liberty, and how it is sad that, that this one kind of shining hope that America is, we still have our legislators arguing whether or not we should basically have infanticide on the Senate floor. And so it was just really powerful that she kind of pulled together her time as the governor, her time being a prominent woman, her time in the U.N. to make this powerful and passionate plea for America to be more pro-life. Right. And Lindsay, right now, this, you know, this this gala happens once a year. But I would say this year, abortion is, you know, on the front of everyone's minds. So people were listening to this speech. How do you think those on the other side would have taken it? I think it's great. I think it's perfect because what a lot of people do on the left is they alienate and they kind of use this very radical rhetoric, like the Miley Cyrus rhetoric. And I really love that you see so many examples of just we are not the extremists. The left likes to say that we're super extreme because we want to protect unborn babies. Um, And I just love seeing a strong, powerful woman stand up and say, you know, unafraid and, and unapologetically, nope, this is this is just my stance and they're not alienating anyone with it. She also in the speech talked about how she as a female governor had such a platform to really speak out about this and how we as women are called to be extra passionate for life and how we are called to be caring towards the others and caring towards the left and actually have a great dialogue. Nothing that you would ever see Miley Cyrus saying. She's like, no, we need to talk about these people. We can't attack these people. They are good people. They just don't understand yet. Right. And she didn't need to use vulgarity to do it. 
Uh, the whole speech is posted on YouTube. Again, it was at the Susan B. Anthony Gala uh, this week. I encourage you to go listen to the whole thing. Um, but that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. I'd like to thank Lauren Evans and Lindsay Playfield for joining me today. Can you please let everyone know how to follow you on social media? I am at Lindsay Fifield on Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow me there. And then the Lady Brains podcast is at Lady Brains podcast on Instagram. And I am Lauren E. Liz Evans on both Twitter and Instagram. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. In the meantime, please subscribe and share. As a social media manager for the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal, I know that conservatives really need your support in the podcast world. And as a co-host of the Lady Brains podcast, I know conservative women really love having this podcast to listen to. So please, greatly, we would greatly appreciate your support. So add a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a huge difference, and Problematic Women is such a great asset to the podcasting community. Have a great week. This podcast was created by The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Edited by Michael Gooden and Thalia Rampersad. Special thanks to The Daily Signal's editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our friend, Bree Payton.